Welcome back to True Crimes Untold, Tales of a Shockingly Strange Past. I'm your host, Jess. This next episode is on the D.C. Mansion Murders. of Philip, his mother, father, and their housekeeper, Vera Figueroa, are discovered in the mansion, all four murdered in cold blood. All of us are focused on finding the perpetrator of this act of evil. Hello, my beautiful friends. How are you guys? I hope you're all well, happy, and healthy. I hope you guys had a wonderful new year and a good Christmas 2022 fucking crazy. So I was supposed to have a guest on this week's episode, but unfortunately he woke up to a very sick puppy. So we have to reschedule, but I already did tons of research on this case, on this episode. So I'm just going to do it. I know I promised you a second part to the demon house, but since I was supposed to have a guest, I didn't want to do that since he wasn't here for the first part. But This episode also has a second part. So when I come back with the next episode, it's going to be the second part to this one. And then after that, I'm going to give you the second part to the demon house. Is that confusing? So two parts for this episode, and then I'll be back with the second part of the demon house. Sorry, guys. I know the demon house was a spooky one, but either way, I'm still going to cover the second part. So it doesn't really matter. So let's get into this. This is one of the craziest cases ever in DC history. I was going to try to fit it into one episode, but it's just literally impossible. So it's called the DC Mansion Murders. On May 14th, 2015, firefighters responded to a fire at a Washington DC mansion on 3201 Woodland Drive. Before I go any further, let me just give you a little like listener's discretion. There's obviously murder in this case, um, torture, there are children, there's a child involved. Um, So yeah, if you don't like to hear about that kind of thing, I would just skip on past. So as the firefighters battled the flames, they soon discovered the bodies of Sava Savopoulos, 46, his wife Amy Savopoulos, 47, their son Philip, 10, and the family's housekeeper, Vera Figueroa, 57. Once the firefighters pulled the bodies from the home, they made another discovery. The four people were not victims to a fire, but had been bludgeoned and stabbed to death be- before being set on fire inside the brick home. The residence quickly transformed from a house fire to a crime scene. The Savopolises were all pronounced dead at the scene, but Vera still had a pulse, so she was rushed to a local hospital. Sadly, she was pronounced dead shortly after. So what happened inside of the Woodland Drive home? That is exactly what police are wondering. The brutal murder of a family and their housekeeper in such a wealthy area of the nation's capital and just blocks away from the vice president's home grew a lot of media attention, and it was soon known as the Mansion Murders. 
Autopsies revealed that the victims were held captive and tortured over a 24-hour period. They were bound to chairs, beaten with a baseball bat, strangled, and stabbed to death, and then lit on fire to destroy any evidence. So who was the Savopolis family? That's where investigators were going to start. Who saw them last on those final days? Did they have any enemies, and why were they targeted? Sova saw... (laughs) Sorry, Sava and Amy got married at the St. Sophia Greek Orthodox Cathedral in June 1994, and this is also where their funeral was held in 2015. Their obituary says they were a devoted couple in love. They went on to have three children, Katerina, Abigail, and Philip. Katerina and Abigail were both at boarding school when their family and longtime housekeeper were murdered. Sava became the CEO of American Ironworks and filed filed a patent for a wireless tool that welders could use while at work. He also had a passion for side projects, such as the design of a martial arts studio. Amy worked at an accounting firm, and she was praised for the active volunteer role she took with local charities and within her children's schools. Friends described the couple as an important part of the community. Philip, who was known to his friends as Flip, was a big fan of basketball, and he loved baseball and kart racing. He one day wanted to become a professional race car driver. Philip's true passion was racing and going fast, the obituary says. Back at the crime scene, investigators are sifting through evidence and making an inventory. During the search, they recovered a bloody baseball bat and a sword from Sava's samurai collection. This led investigators to believe that they were tortured before being murdered and incinerated. Keith Alexander, a Washington Post crime reporter, told Nancy Grace that the grisly discoveries that authorities found, quote, disrupted the sense of security in the area. Investigators found a few other clues inside the home as well. They found a hair strand and some leftover pizza with a slice that had a bite taken from the crust. They also noticed that the Savopolis family had a security system, but when they checked for any tapes or footage, it was missing from the home. Investigators wondered if their suspect maybe knew the family rather than some random home invasion. They also thought that this crime was too complex for one person to carry out alone. Just a few hours after the investigation began, traffic cameras tracked the family's car, a blue Porsche that was stolen from their home. WTOP News reported in 2018 that the car was tracked going through D.C. and into Maryland, where it was later found on fire. Inside of the torch car was another piece of evidence, a construction vest. Police started interviewing individuals who worked in the family home and employees at Sava's business, American Iron Works. By all accounts, Wednesday, May 13, 2015, began like any other day at the Savopolis house. Sava was in the process of getting his martial arts studio ready for a grand opening, and he still had a lot to do, which was scheduled for the same week of the murders. Even though Sava was very busy that morning, he still was texting back and forth with his daughter Katerina shortly before 7 a.m., Katerina was the middle child, and her and Sava were very close. 
These texts show Sava being a typical dad and show how close he was with his children. There was no sign that just in a few hours something terrible would happen. These text messages would be the last time Katerina spoke to her dad. Philip was staying home from school that morning to go to a doctor's appointment. Amy drove Philip to his appointment at an office building only about 20 minutes away from their house, just over the D.C. line into Maryland. They are seen on a surveillance video walking into the office building. The visit was pretty quick. A ticket shows that Amy parked at 9.09 a.m. and leaving at 10.45 a.m. From there, the two headed back home to Woodland Drive. At about 12.30, Amy's phone records show Philip's teacher sending her a text saying it wouldn't be, make much sense for Philip to come in for the rest of the day since the school day was almost over. She never responded to that text message. Since Sava was on a deadline to get the dojo up and running, he left that morning for Ch Chantilly, Virginia, where he was meeting contractors to prepare for the grand opening. A few days before, Amy reached out to ask Nellie Giratez, the family's other housekeeper, if she could take on some extra work and help Sava in Chantilly. So, on that Wednesday, May 13th, Nellie and a crew went out to the dojo to help clean the place up. Vera was supposed to go with Nellie to help since she needed all the extra hands she could get. At first, Vera agreed to go with Nellie, but then, at the last minute, she changed her mind. This surprised Nellie because Vera had a hard time in communicating in English, so Vera always wanted to work alongside Nellie. That day was the first time in 16 years of working together that Vera told Nellie no, and that she was going to go to the house with Amy and Philip instead. Back at the Savopolis house, call and text records go silent. It's hard to tell what's happening and when it's happening. There is nothing to indicate that it's still just a normal day. Margaret Pressler, one of the Savopolis' neighbors, recalls seeing Amy that Wednesday morning at around 11.30. Margaret was in her car near the Savopolis house when she saw Amy walking back towards her house. She said Amy was walking slowly, maybe because she was getting ready to head up a long hill that leads her to her home. She noticed Amy was carrying a bag, and she said she looked nice and was dressed nicely. But Margaret said it was unusual the, the way Amy was dressed, and it stuck out in her mind. Amy often wore athletic clothes since she was super into fitness, and she walked everywhere. But when Margaret saw her, she was dressed in a khaki skirt with a cardigan or a dark jacket slung over her shoulders, and that she had a large brown leather purse that was hanging off her shoulder. No one knows where Amy was coming from, but prosecutors believe that Amy had left the house to run some errands or maybe a quick Starbucks run before Vera, ha Vera had to leave for the day. Vera always left around 3 o'clock. Margaret's testimony was a key part of the timeline that prosecutors put together. Margaret said it's haunting to her, that Amy will always exist in her mind standing in that spot, the last spot she would ever see her, and quite possibly the last person to ever see Amy alive. Now what happens next is still a mystery. But when Amy arrived back home and walked in, investigators believe an intruder who would eventually take Sava, Amy, their son, and Vera hostage had already cut the phone lines and found a way into the home. 
In some of the crime scene photos of the entrance of the home, you can see a Starbucks cup and sitting on a chair, you can see a large brown leather bag, just like the one Margaret Pressler described seeing Amy having hanging from her shoulder. It looks like Amy walked inside, set her things down, and the investigators believe this is the moment Amy is taken hostage. Shortly after, the phone calls start. Sometime after the Sometime after the phone lines were cut, a pet hotel was trying to call the house. The Savopolis family would often board their two Chesapeake Bay retrievers, Ginger and Bear. The family had reservations coming up for their dogs for Memorial Day weekend, a little more than a week away. Amy had yet not confirmed the booking or put down a deposit, which is why the hotel was calling. A receptionist tried calling the house at 3.14 p.m. the afternoon the family was taken hostage. She couldn't get through, and she wrote in her logbook, Home Phone Disconnected. The dogs did survive the fire unharmed. Investigators wondered how the intruder was able to make it past the dogs and into the house. Both are big dogs, and Ginger is known to be aggressive, especially towards strangers. And again, no one knows what happens next. Investigators were using their imaginations trying to fill in the blanks. About an, about an hour later, the pet hotel tried calling Amy's cell phone. Still no answer. Then at 4.38 p.m., Amy calls her husband. When Sava answers his phone, Amy asks him to come home. Sava is still at the martial arts studio with his hands full. Nellie was standing near Sava when he took the call, and she remembers he was reluctant to leave because there was still so much work to get done. He was cracking jokes, saying he couldn't leave because Nellie was very late and lazy as they laughed together. Finally, Sava agrees to come home and tells Nellie that he has to leave, that Amy made plans to go out with her friends, and she needs Sava to come home and stay with Philip. Nellie said she and some of the crew found Amy's phone call a little strange. Why would Amy have Sava leave the dojo when she knew the grand opening was Friday? She rolled it out to be just another busy day where plans were changing at the last minute. Nellie says she won't ever forget watching Sava walk out the, out the dojo that day. I'm sorry, walking out of the dojo that evening. It's the last time she ever saw him. Investigators say that Amy was forced to make that call to Sava to lure him home. Once Sava gets home, more phone calls and text messages would be made, all of them at the directions of the intruder. And all the people they were calling while they were being held captive, none of them had an idea what was going on inside the house. Just a few minutes after Amy got off the phone with Sava, she calls, calls the pet resort back. Investigators were confused why. Was the intruder nervous because of all the missed calls from the pet hotel? Either way, she made the call. The receptionist that testified at the trial said Amy didn't sound like herself. Normally, Amy was bubbly and chatty, but this time Amy sounded off, like she was sleepy. Amy had the receptionist charge the card she had on file, and they got off the phone. Prosecutors say Amy and later Sava remained calm on these phone calls because they would do whatever it took to keep their son Philip safe. Shortly before 6 o'clock, about an hour and a half after Amy talked to Sava on the phone asking him to come home, the house's alarm system sends out three, click, three quick alerts. 
The security system recorded the sound of breaking glass at 5.56, 5.57, and 5.59 p.m. The Savopolis house had a security system from a company called Security Engineering Incorporated, but it wasn't fully activated. The notifications about the breaking glass were being logged on the security's computer in Maryland, but the alerts were not being monitored. No one was calling to check on the family. And the glass break detector wouldn't cause much suspicion anyway. During the trial, the security company said there were a lot of things that could set that off. Dropping your keys down on the counter, a dog's collar jangling, any type of sound like that could cause a glass break alert. So no one knows why that system got alerted. The system was still new, and the Savopolis family was still getting used to it. If the system was activated, it would alert when the outside doors were open, but on that Wednesday, it was not activated. At 6.25 p.m., Sava is almost home, and this was known because Sava's phone pinged off cell phone towers. No one knows what happens when Sava walks into his house, but there are some clues. When investigators took a swab of the kitchen door in the back of the house, they found traces of his blood. They think he was attacked there, caught off guard, right as he was walking in. In crime scene photos, you can see Sava's red briefcase tossed on the floor and a ring of keys dropped on the floor. We know the adults were all placed together, Amy, Sava, and Vera in Abigail's bedroom upstairs and Philip in the adjoining room, which was Katerina's room. Vera and Amy were bound at their hands and ankles with duct tape. Crime Crime investigators found gray tape residue stuck on the bottom of the chair legs. Sava's wrists were restrained with zip ties. All the adults had bruising and cuts on their wrists, as if they were struggling against their restraints. These these were the rooms that they were all found in. After a few more phone calls, it becomes clear what this intruder wants. He wants money. Shortly before 8 o'clock, Sava calls his sister. Deborah Masser worked for American Ironworks. She was the controller of the business. She lived in Florida and worked remotely. As the controller, Deborah handled the money. Sava tells her that night that he needs to withdraw anywhere between $35,000 and $50,000. Deborah said it wasn't unusual for Sava to attend auctions on the hunt for specialized equipment, very expensive equipment. His sister thought that's what he was going. That's where he was going and why he needed the money right away. And he was adamant that it had to be cash. During the trial when Deborah was asked how Sava sounded on the phone, she said, like Sava, he sounded perfectly normal. She couldn't get the money that night since it was 8 o'clock and the banks were closed, so he would have to wait until the next morning. Sava's next steps to try and keep his family alive was to arrange the money drop. He needed someone to do what he asked with no questions asked. That someone was Jordan Wallace, Sava's personal assistant. At 8.27 p.m., Sava calls Jordan and leaves him a voicemail with specific instructions. He tells Jordan to go to the American Ironworks building and wait for a package that he needs Jordan to bring to him and that he will be in touch with him for more details. In the voicemail, Sava makes a joke and laughs. He sounds calm and normal. At 8.30 p.m., Jordan texts back, Got your message. We'll wait for package. 
At 9.14 p.m., Amy makes a phone call to a Domino's Pizza about 10 minutes away from, the, from Woodland Drive. The assistant manager answered the phone and took the order for two pizzas, one cheese, one pepperoni, and a bottle of soda. Amy paid over the phone with a credit card, adding a $5 tip for the driver. I just had to add that in, the $5 tip, because I'm like, even going through this, what they were going through, she was still considerate enough to leave that driver a tip. I was in awe when I read that. Uh, And she had a strange request. She told the manager that she was tending to her son that wasn't feeling well, and the driver should just leave the pizza on the front porch and not ring the doorbell. As we already know from what I said earlier, the pizza, cru- the pizza is crucial evidence in this case. About 20 minutes after the pizza was ordered, at 9.35 p.m., Sava made a call to Nellie. He left her a voicemail saying Amy was in bed sick and Vera offered to stay the night to help her out and to help with Philip. Sava also said that Vera's phone had died, and she didn't have her charger, and they didn't have one that would fit her phone, so could Nellie let anyone know who would be worried about Vera? Oh, and could Nellie please text him back when she gets this message? Vera had worked at the family's home every day, Monday through Friday, for four years, and she had never once stayed the night. Just a few hours earlier, Sava had to leave the dojo because Amy was going out with friends, and why couldn't Vera use Sava's cell phone to call her husband herself? All these details stuck out to Nellie when she heard the voicemail. They made her suspicious. It made her feel like something wasn't right, but there's a problem. Nellie didn't hear that voicemail until the next morning. The pizza driver testified at the trial that when he got to the house, all the lights looked like they were off. All he could see was the front porch light. The driver said he left the pizza on the porch just like he was asked. Investigators believe what happened next was the intruder made his way downstairs and out to the front porch to get the pizza. And that's when he notices, for the first time, the security camera perched up in a corner above the front door. When the front door opens, a motion detector triggers the camera to kick on and begin recording. The next day, Thursday, May 14th, 2015, it's now been 15 hours since an intruder broke into the Savopolis home and has been holding the family and Vera hostage. At 6.19 a.m., Amy's phone is used to make a series of phone calls to a man named Eric Pellick, the vice president of SCI Security. His company recently installed the family security system. 45 minutes later, at 7.02 a.m., Amy's phone calls Eric again. It's unclear on the call logs that were presented during the trial if Amy ever got through. The call started to the security company the night before, so it was obvious whoever was dialing the phone was desperate to talk with somebody. At 10.08 p.m. on Wednesday night, Sava makes the first call to Eric's number. He wanted to know how the new security system worked. Were the cameras outside the house always recording, or was there something that would cause them to activate, and where was the video stored? Eric tells Sava that the night that the security cameras are set to record, sorry, let me say that again. Eric tells Sava that night that the security cameras are set to record when they detect motion, and the footage was not being stored in the cloud, 
but saved directly to a hard drive to a computer that was inside the house in a utility room on the third floor. Investigators believe that Sava and Amy were so desperate to get a hold of Eric because when the intruder went outside to grab the pizza, he noticed the security camera and panicked. This is the prosecutor's theory of what happened. There's no evidence or video of him picking up the pizza from the front porch because the computer hard drive was stolen from the house and never found. The next morning when they were calling Eric again, Sava wanted to know for sure if there was anything stored in the cloud and he wanted to know how he could access the stored video. Eric said all the calls did seem strange, but but it didn't throw up any red flags. He never suspected what was really going on. There were also several calls that morning to arrange getting the money. One of those calls was to Jordan Wallace. Sava tells Jordan over the phone to go to the office and wait for a package. Sava doesn't tell him what the package is, but that it will be ready around 10 a.m. Then Sava makes a call to his sister, Deborah, again. This time he tells his sister a specific amount, $40,000, and he wants it dropped off at his house. Deborah tells Sava that she will call Ted Chase, the company's chief financial, financial officer, Sava next calls Sava's next call is to Bank of America. It's just before 8 a.m. and Sava gets a hold of Elena Shepard as she's arriving at the bank. Elena knows Sava. She worked with his account for years. Sava tells Elena that he wants to make a withdrawal of $40,000 in cash. Elena said something about the request didn't sit right with her but she knew it wasn't her place to tell a client what to do with their money, and Sava sounded fine. She tells him that she will start working on it and will have to call around to a few different branches to see which one has the cash on hand. Then Sava calls Ted Chase himself, his CFO, to tell him he needs to pick up the money from the bank. Ted decided he would draft up a letter and email email it to Sava for him to digitally sign since he wasn't going to drive to the office to sign it in person. Ted would then take the digital signature to the bank. Since Deborah didn't seem alarmed about the situation, Ted said neither was he. During the trial, Ted said Sava sounded perfectly normal on the phone, nothing out of the ordinary at all. At 8.30 in the morning, Nellie tries to call Vera. Vera didn't answer her call the night before and wasn't answering her call now. It wasn't sitting right with Nellie. She was wondering, what's wrong with my friend? Nellie had no real reason to worry, so she thought there had to be a, had to be a reason why she couldn't be answering her calls, like maybe she was on the metro. Nellie called Vera three times that day, and Vera never picked up once. Investigators believe when Nellie was calling that Vera was upstairs, restrained, alongside Amy, Sava, and Philip. Crime scene photos show Vera's cell phone inside her purse two floors down. Shortly after 9 a.m., Elena Shepard calls Sava back and tells him the Bank of America branch down the street from the American Iron Ironworks office has the $40,000 available to withdraw. A little after 9 a.m., Jordan Wallace gets to the office to wait for the package his boss is expecting. The American Iron Works office is about 30-minute drive to the Savopolis home on Woodland Drive. That morning at the office, Ted Chase told Jordan Wallace to follow him. 
Ted decided to take Jordan to the bank with him. Back at the house, there is a series of unexpected visitors. Just after 9 a.m., the Savopolis's doorbell rings. It's a technician from a company that took care of the family's underground lawn sprinklers. The appointment was scheduled for weeks. He's standing there ringing the doorbell, but no one, no one is coming to the door to answer. A few minutes later, at 9.12 a.m., Amy calls the sprinkler company and tells the boss, a man named David Arbor, that she needs to cancel the appointment, that she wasn't home and had to leave her house because her son was injured and had to take him to the hospital. He told her no problem and said they would reschedule another time, and then he told his technician to move on to the next appointment. He was asked during the trial if anything stood out about that call. He said, yes. Amy sounded nervous, very nervous. Jordan and Ted drive separately to the Bank of America. Ted knows how much cash they are going to pick up, but Jordan doesn't, yet. In surveillance surveillance footage, you can see Ted and Jordan walk into the bank and up to the teller. Ted does the transaction, and a few minutes later, the teller hands him four stacks of neatly wrapped cash. The whole transaction lasts about 12 minutes, which is just insane to me. 12 minutes, and to think of 22 hours of just being held captive, all for a 12-minute transaction of $40,000. It's just crazy when you think about it in time like that. The four stacks are all $100 bills in stacks of 10000 Ted puts one stack in his left pocket and the other in his right, and then him and Jordan walk to the door to leave. Back on Woodland Drive, more unexpected visitors start to show up. It's Vera's husband, Bernardo Alfaro, and his daughter and Vera's stepdaughter, Claudia. Vera hadn't come home yet, and he couldn't reach Vera on her phone, and he knew something wasn't right, so he called his daughter Claudia, and they decided to go to the Woodland Drive home together. They parked on the side of the street near the house's driveway. Bernardo told his daughter to wait in the car, and he walked up to the house. Claudia noticed a flashy sports car parked on the side of the street and took a picture to send to her husband. It was a blue Porsche 911. Bernardo had been knocking on the door for a few minutes, but no one was answering. He felt like someone was in the house. He said he heard a little noise like someone was moving furniture, specifically chairs across the floor. After 20 minutes of knocking, Bernardo gives up and walks back to the car. He tells his daughter that someone is in there, but they don't want to answer me. Getting upset and impatient, Bernardo goes back, goes to walk back up to the house when his phone rings. It's Sava. Sava tells Bernardo that he's sorry and he meant to call last night. He told him that Amy got sick and Vera had gone with her to the hospital. Sava told him that he would call the hospital to see how long they would be and that he would call Bernardo back and hangs up. Bernardo tries to call Sava back, but he didn't answer. Claudia suggested they go to the hospital themselves, but didn't know which hospital they were at. Bernardo feels uneasy because Vera didn't speak English very well, so why would she go to the hospital with Amy? Bernardo said Sava did reassure him before he hung up the phone. He told me, quote, everything was okay. Outside the Bank of America in Maryland, 
Ted hands Jordan Wallace the stacks of money in the parking lot. He tells him, guard this with your life. Jordan pulls out a black backpack and puts the money inside. Jordan then sets off for Sava's house and picks up his phone to call Sava to say he's on his way. At that very moment, he can see that Sava is calling him. It's 9.51 a.m. Do me a favor, Sava says. Call me when you're 10 minutes away and I'll give you instructions. Jordan said it was the most money he has ever seen in his life, and when he's alone with the money, he snaps a picture of it, sends it to his girlfriend, and then deletes the picture and text. A few minutes later, Amy texts Nellie. Even though Nellie wasn't supposed to be coming that day, Amy wants to make sure she doesn't just stop by since she does have a key. At 9.56 a.m., Amy sends a text telling Nellie that if she planned on coming today, that she shouldn't, and and Amy suggested another day for her to come. Nellie doesn't respond right away. Around the same time, Sava gets a text from his daughter, Katerina. She's asking him if it's even worth her asking if she can go to a party after the prom. There's no response. At 10.15 a.m., Jordan calls Sava to tell him he's 10 minutes away. Sava tells Jordan he's on an important conference call, so don't knock on the door. Just leave the package on the driver's seat of the car in the garage. He then told Jordan to head out to the dojo in Chantley. I'll be behind you, Sava tells him. When Jordan gets to the house a few minutes later, he parks on the street across from the driveway. He said the right side of the two-car garage door was already open. Jordan took the money out of his backpack and put it in a manila envelope that he brought with him from the office. He goes into the garage and opens the sports car's driver's side door. Jordan said he never hears anything strange or anything at all when he was in the garage. During the trial, Jordan said nothing seemed off. He heads back to his car, and at 10.26 a.m., he sends Sava a text that says, Package delivered. And then Jordan pulls away. It looks like Sava is typing a reply, but then nothing. At 10.38, Nellie responds back to the text message Amy sent. She told Amy she didn't have any plans to go to the house and that she would see her Monday. The money was dropped off, and no one else was expected to stop by. There would be no more calls or texts from that day. Things go quiet again. These last few hours, when there was silence, this is when investigators think they were killed. At 11.54 in the morning, Sava's cell phone pings off a cell phone tower in DuPont Circle, which is about 10-minute drive from Woodland Drive. So it's clear someone took Sava's cell phone with them. Shortly after noon, two employees who worked at the residence of the Australian ambassador reported seeing a man go into the Savopolis house, and they were able to give investigators a description. They saw that he had dreadlocks and was wearing a drawstring backpack, and they saw him slip inside. At 1.07 p.m., the Savopolis security system alerts to the sound of breaking glass in an upstairs room and then again in an upstairs hallway. Several minutes later, the carbon monoxide detector goes off inside the house. Then the security system alerts to breaking glass in the living room, and then the smoke detector alarm starts going off. In just a couple of minutes, neighbors start texting Sava and Amy about the fire at their house. 
a man named Donald Spence, driving through the neighborhood, spots the smoke rolling out of the home. He jumps out of his truck and runs to the front door and calls 911. When Jordan finds out about the fire, it was a couple hours after he dropped off the money at the house. There were multiple frantic calls to the office, people wondering where Sava is. He tries to call Sava and Amy repeatedly, no response. The workers at the dojo were all worried, but Jordan was acting like a nervous maniac. Jordan races back to Woodland Drive, and when he gets there, police took him in for questioning. They searched his phone and got a warrant to search his car and take a DNA sample. Jordan Wallace was a suspect. Jordan was an easy pick early in the investigation. He didn't work for Sava long, and they didn't know each other very long, but long enough to gain gain Sava's trust. And he was the only person that was near the house when they were being held captive. When investigators found the deleted picture and text that Jordan sent to his girlfriend, he told them he deleted it because he didn't want Sava to see it, that Sava always told him to be discreet about his wealth. Jordan also told police some things that seemed questionable. It's clear to police that the $40,000 wasn't to spend at an auction, it was ransom money. The detective has Jordan go over the drop step by step over and over again, and Jordan slips up. First, he says when he went to the garage to drop off the package that the car was locked and he had to get the key from the inside cabinet in the garage. In a police video, Jordan shows the reenactment of him getting the key from a cabinet and unlocking unlocking the car. But then he backtracks and says no, the car was already unlocked. He also told investigators that the first time Sava reached out to him was that morning, but Sava called him the night before and left him the first voicemail about picking up the package. He also told police that when Ted handed him the money, that it was already in a manila envelope. When Jordan was asked in court why he changed his story, he told the prosecutor that he was confused and scared when he was being questioned by police, and it was obvious that the police didn't believe him. But that didn't matter because police tracked Jordan's phone for those couple of days and he was nowhere near the Savopolis home. When investigators analyzed the construction vest that they found in the family's stolen car that was set on fire, they found traces of DNA. But the key piece of evidence that was tested was that pizza crust that had a bite in it. That led police to their prime suspect and one of the most wanted men in America, Darren Wint. The other big pieces of evidence were two tiny hairs that were both found inside the home. The first one was found inside a construction helmet that investigators found on the floor in the garage. The second hair was found embedded in the bloody comforter that was on the bed. It was dark brown, curly, and about two centimeters long, and it was broken at both ends. Hair does contain DNA. If the root is attached, you get nuclear DNA, which identifies every individual person. But if the root isn't attached, then you only... The only type of DNA you can get is mitochondrial DNA, which is not unique to you as an individual. It is shared by you and all your siblings if you have the same mother. Now that police have identified Darren Wint as their prime suspect, they went to his last known address in Lanham, Maryland. 
where the Wint family lived, which is about two miles from the church parking lot where Amy Savopoulos' Porsche was found burned. By that point, Darren had left town and he was hundreds of miles away. So I am going to end it there. It's pretty obvious I need a little sippy poo of something anyway. So yeah, next episode, we are obviously going to get into who Darren Went is, uh, the trial, you know, when he gets arrested, just everything else, the rest of the story. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at True Crimes Untold Podcast. I'm on Spotify. Hit the subscribe button and you will get every other week notifications with new episodes. I will see you guys in a couple weekends. Bye.